this week on the Back Table Podcast. But I mean, if you've lived that, or if you, you know, you you're doing a PAVM and suddenly like the device fails and you've got to go fetch the, you know, the the plug or whatever in another artery, yeah. um, then then I think like you need to you need to take a moment, you know, and whether yeah. that moment is you need to go home or whether you need to like you know do moderate, you know, supervise a pick or place it or do a paracentesis. I think like most people will not say that they won't be like, listen, listen, Sonny, I just had a crappy case. Can I like go read out some film or can I go, you know, do the pick line? I think most people will be like, yeah, man, I'm okay. Like I got this. I'll, I'll, I'll dilate the SVC. No problem. <laughs> so, but <laughs> well, I think that that's bad. Yeah, you're human in one nature and you just made an error. And then the next minute you're asked to be superhuman and forget about that mistake. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your IR colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinets. This is Aaron Fritz returning as your host, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Maureen Cohey from UCSF and Dr. Sunday Bagala uh, of the Vascular Institute of Virginia. Welcome, guys. Um, but before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And let them know that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. And before we get into our topic, I just uh, real quick, Sonny and Maureen, um, do you guys use anything special for radiation protection, or, or do you use the RadPad materials? We use the RadPad. Oh, you do? Oh, cool. Do you guys have? Um, I just got the pads that you actually put on. You know, like if you're doing a long case, you put it right in front of you. But um, do you guys do anything else beyond that? I would have figured um, we, Maureen being in teaching place is using residents and fellows for radiation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only um, but the controlling part of me won't allow that. Um, we actually uh, we actually uh, published a series um, in JVIR using RadPad demonstrating the decrease in radiation to the operator um, and and overall radiation. Um, using the rad pad. So I, I truly believe in it. And I think that we should be using it in every case. I think it just comes down to resources and time, which is unfortunate as always. Well, very cool. Well, if you know, Sonny, if you guys are interested, check out, you know, the uh, radpad.com. They'll, they'll come and do a free radiation evaluation and give you some free radiation caps if you guys are interested. Um, but uh, let's get into the topic today. Um, this is a, a very important topic that uh, Sonny, Maureen, and I had, had gotten into when we were uh, hanging out chatting at SIR, and we thought it would make for a great discussion on the podcast. And like Maureen said, you know, we see as IRs, we're, we're posting a lot and, and kind of boasting a lot about our, our successes and, and showing these, these crazy cases on, on social media, but it's, it, you don't see as much of our failures. And, um, you know, it would, it is something to learn from. And, um, not just to learn from you know what not to do technically, but also 
how do you how do you deal with that? Um, because it, it does haunt you and it can last for a while. And, and how does how do you turn that around and make it a positive thing and, and learn from it? And also, how do you help your colleagues who might be going through uh, the pain of of a you know a bad complication? So there's two two parts I wanted to kind of cover in this podcast. One is the immediate effect of a complication. How do you talk to the patient and, and their family and, and give them you know an honest, clear answers and information about what happened? Um, and we'll get into that. And then the second part I want to get into is, is is dealing with that you know yourself, that internal disappointment, the anger, the fear, the doubt that comes with the experience of a patient complication. So. Um, First, I, I was going to ask you, Maureen, you know, if you uh, can, you know, you're at uh, an academic institution, do you guys have, you know, any sort of protocols in place, you know, if something, uh, a bad thing happens in a patient, what, what's sort of your first step? Um, <clears throat> thanks, Aaron. And I just wanted to uh, reiterate how important this topic is, um, you know, very uh, close to my heart, because I have been on both sides of this um, as the operator supervising a terrible, terrible fatal complication and uh, a family member of someone who had a complication. But um, I think that uh, to be to be quite frank, um, there, the interventional radiology division doesn't have a set protocol. We just follow what um, UCSF Health um, puts, uh, puts forward. And uh, it's a pretty um, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty, uh, functional, uh, kind of algorithm where if a complication occurs due to an error of some sort, then it gets, uh, kind of escalated up the chain to the associate chair of quality in the person's department. And then there's a proper investigation that's really put together, um, and led by the associate chair of quality um, in our in our department, we're lucky in that um, that person's my partner, um, Paul of Coley, who is um, an interventional radiologist, and uh, you know direct communication with the CMO of the hospital occurs, Adrian Green, and uh, that it's decided whether the case you know needs to be escalated further. Um, and then there's definitely, if there was an error, um, the p- case is then presented um, at root cause analysis and the individual and the people who are involved are invited to attend. And um, based on that, steps are made to uh, you know, ensure that that error does not occur again. I mean, that's a very simplified version. And in certain cases, um, where and quote never event occurred, such as you know an air embolism, retained foreign objects, things like that. Then it mandates um, a report to uh, the state of California, and that requires its own set of um, investigation um, and reporting. Um, again, depending on the complication and the effect, um, uh, there's a whole separate discussion for with regards to the physician and, um, you know, uh, whether the chair gets involved or the chief gets involved and, you know, making sure that this doesn't happen again. Um, there are support systems that are offered to the, the faculty and the trainees who are going through this. Um, we have a pretty robust um, program um, and uh, you can go and uh, it's called the Faculty and Staff Assistant Program or FSAP. And you can go and discuss what happened and get support. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, 
Did anybody Sorry, ahead, get some serious bout of anxiety after hearing Maureen describe that whole process? <laughs> right. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, it, I did want to, I did have a follow-up question for you, Maureen, but real quick, Sonny, you and I are in private practice and basically practicing in OBLs. Do you guys have something set up for your yeah. institution? So it's interesting you say that. So in my, in my previous experience for about eight, eight, nine years or so, I was in a private practice, but in a hospital-based environment, uh, and then now in an OBL. And interestingly, uh, there's not much in the way of difference, uh, between the two, you know, in the hospital base. If it's an error, like we called, you know, for our terminology for our hospital was a red rule violation. Um, we would um, just like the complications that Maureen mentioned that are necessarily reportable. For example, uh, we would go down the same avenues that Maureen mentioned, probably with less in the way of resources, uh, being in private practice um, and not having, you know, the uh, the degree of you know hierarchy. I'd say um, we primarily would get say risk management involved. Um, department chairs, uh, occasionally other department chairs if the patient had crossover from one care of one department like interventional radiology to surgery or other departments. Um, but in the current environment, similarly, we have a process for reporting state-regulated uh, uh, complications like retained foreign bodies, things like that, radiation exposure, et cetera. Um, but as far as uh, other complications go, uh, to be honest, uh, you know, one is I want to just point out is is I, I don't know, despite all of these sort of regulations and rules, um, you as an individual physician may be left out feeling like you're just doing all this reporting and doing all this stuff and letting everybody know and sort of broadcasting your your complication of, of what might have happened. In Maureen's case, it might be her or fellow resident, um, or in my case, it might just be me uh, or a case that was involved, say myself or my partners or even a referring physician where multiple errors were made. Um, or frankly, not even errors were made, but it just led to a complication for the patient. Um, and you may find that you're just stressed out and reporting these events to multiple different parties, if you will. Um, but you're, there's nothing actually necessarily being given in return. You know, Sort of like in Maureen's situation, I think she's describing that there's a support process in place in many private practices, at least I can speak for just the, the couple that I've been part of, and maybe Aaron, you could speak to yours. There's not a organized uh, forum for somebody to give you support or feedback. Right, and I was that was my follow up question to Maureen: is how often do they do their their M and M's? So in the past, we used to have a monthly uh, QA meeting where we would discuss all our complications, um, which are self-reported. So the attending tells the trainee, um, you know, make sure to add this to the QA list, regardless of the degree of severity of the complication. But then, you know, one uh, one meeting a month just didn't seem to be enough in terms of the teaching component. So you just go through and you say, okay, this, that, and the other. Um, so we now have uh, a two. Uh, we have every other week QA meetings, and when there isn't much on the QA front, um, we dedicate uh, the remainder of the time to quality, just, you know, quality issues that come up, you know, like what we just talked about with the rad pad, you know, why aren't we using this more often? You know, we, we demonstrated that this was, you know, beneficial to the operator, you know, such things. So, and I think those are really important for learning. Um, but again, uh, I think that there needs to be an, an additional resource or encouragement of trying to deal with the 
the emotions that arise after, you know, presenting your QA and then hearing people criticize you for why that happened, et cetera. And I think that that's something that um, is very personal. So this, this FSAP that I'm talking about is, you know, you have to, it's, it's initiative, right? If you want to take the initiative to go to talk to somebody about the error that you made, or you want to talk to your wife or your husband, that's great, but it's definitely not, you know, kind of, you're not told to do that. And I think that's the disconnect. Any adverse event, um, so let's say commonly a port infection, right? You put the port in an ambulatory setting or an inpatient hospital setting, and the skin gets infected. Um, That gets reported during our, you know, bi-monthly meeting, Um, and uh, and that the hospital keeps track of line infections, but that's it. Now, let's say that, for example, you asked for the the requesting physician asked for a power injectable port and you as the physician placed a non-power injectable port. Now there are several reasons why this could happen, right? You know, the tech gave you the wrong port, the the wrong port was ordered, you know, and stored and, but you as the operator didn't turn the port around to look for the CT mark or whatnot. And you placed it in and then now the port is in, it's functional, but the patient can't go and get, you know, it's used for imaging. Um, so in that case, then this will warrant an escalation. So um, it's it's an error that was made. Nothing catastrophic has happened to the patient. You could argue nothing bad has happened. You know, no infection, nothing. But it does it didn't follow what the order was, and it inconveniences the patient clearly. So that sort of thing gets reported to um, the and is discussed at root cause analysis, and in order to make steps. Um, to prevent those sorts of things. So I think the best way I could summarize it is if you can determine that the error was something that could have been preventable, then you probably will escalate it to root cause. So, but if, you know, port infection is just a, you know, this is an expected complication of the procedure. Um, And if everything was followed, you know, the, the skin prep was followed, the appropriate time for it to dry was followed, and everything was done in a sterile fashion, but the patient ended up getting an infection, then that, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be escalated unless the patient feels for whatever reason it should be. So unfortunately, it's not quite, you know, like a black and white situation. There's quite a bit of gray area. But the best way I can justify it or I can explain it is if there's something to be learned about, you know, a system-based issue or some error that we could prevent in the future, then it needs to be discussed at at a RCA meeting so that we could take the appropriate steps so it doesn't happen again and it benefits quality. You know, it's a great point, Maureen. And Aaron, for those of us who are in private practice, I think that highlights something that's that's very important and also very doable and manageable, even within an OBL and private practice setting, which is consistently tracking your outcomes. Yeah. And not obviously your successes, whether posted on Twitter or even at an M&M conference at SIR, where most people are showing these dramatic saves, if you will. The key really is, I think, tracking your, your outcomes and complications in an organized fashion and then doing a root cause analysis, like she mentioned, and making sure that all of these check marks have been uh, have been taken and done. And you know, sometimes you will find out that people need retraining, reeducation, and it may not just be the physician doing the procedure. It may be those involved in the sterile prep. It may be a new tech or a new nurse that didn't give prophylactic antibiotics. It could be errors along the way that could easily be fixed. And if you're 
in an OBL setting where, of course, you're getting, say, for example, AAA HC accreditation, um, like our center is, for example, then you, ha- you have to keep track of these uh, outcomes, um, not just for implantable devices, but for, for all procedures. And I think to Maureen's point, um, you know, presenting them in an organized fashion, whether it's called something at her institution or something else at others, um, that is uh, a valuable uh, method to make sure that you improve your overall quality as time goes on. Um, I do want to get into, you know, immediately following a complication, you're coming out of a case, you know, how do you communicate that to the the family first, because usually the patient's still waking up and then the patient themselves. And is there something, you know, that I think some of the challenges to that are, you know, learning how to communicate um, concern to your patient or, or the family without actually feeling the emotion of that, what they might be feeling, because you need to have some separation to maintain your ability to be effective in communication. You can't be coming out sobbing, you know, uh, if, for example, you know, if it's a death, for example, the, the most extreme thing, you, you can't be, you can't be communicating while you're crying. I mean, you have to, you have to be professional and, and communicate that information effectively. So do you guys have any advice for that or any personal experiences? I can take this. I feel very strongly about this. Um, So I can just tell you in a quick little vignette when I was, um, you know, barely a a junior attending and um, I had to put in a tunneled line for dialysis in this patient whose ejection fraction was maybe like, I don't know, two or 20 or something very, very low. And she was extremely sick you know, multi-organ, you know, disease. And she was a lovely woman and I'll never forget her face. Um, And I, you know, we are in an academic institution and I was doing this with my fellow. And my job as a supervising attending is to stand next to my fellow to ensure that he's doing everything correctly. Um, This was September. So many, many months had passed into the fellowship. And, uh, and I didn't feel comfortable giving this woman sedation just because she had essentially no preload. Um, and she wanted to go for it with just, uh, uh, you know, analgesia and, and lots of um, local numbing medicine. And I decided that I wanted to hold her hand and sort of talk her through this. And as opposed to being on the other side of the blue drapes, you know, kind of with the visualization of the field, I was on the other end, you know, talking to her, you know, um, holding her hand. And what ended up happening, the procedure went very smoothly, except for the fact that the, the tunnel dialysis catheter that we chose originally ended up being too short. And, uh, and so um, the, the, the fellow didn't put it in. Um, and we, when we measured, we realized that it was too short. So then what ended up happening is we asked for a longer um, catheter. And so the, a new catheter was dropped onto the table and I wasn't there to prep it. And I just assumed that everything was going to be fine. And, and again, it, this highlights when there is a break in your pattern, you know, how when you're a radiologist and you're looking at an imaging study, you have to, you have a search pattern and you have to, right. you know, the second you interrupt that search pattern. And so the fellow was brilliant and he had a, a medical student who he was teaching to. And it just so happened that the, the TDC was not flushed or capped uh, or clamped. 
And I was supposed to be on the other side. That's my job. I'm the supervising attending and I should have caught that. And so I'm, you know, being sweet and holding this woman's hand and talking to her. And the fellow goes on and puts in the catheter and the tip is a little too long. You know, it's, it's, it's a little too deep in the RA. And so all I say is, can you pull it back? And so I think, you know, you pull it back and then, and then, and it looks great. And then what's told to the patient is, you know, okay, take a deep breath and hold your breath. And so she takes a breath and I can hear from the other end of the table, you know, the, the sucking sound of an air embolism going into this 13.5 French, you know, catheter. And, and that's sort of when I knew that this was going to end really badly. And I mean, if you've ever been in a situation where someone gets a terrible air embolism, I mean, it's exactly what happens. You know, they have this like, you know, devastating painful feeling like they're going to die because they're, you know, they have a sense, you know, outflow of blood, um, out of their, out of their heart. Um, and, and she, you know, and I knew right away what had happened and I went over there and, and, and again, that was my completely my fault. And so, um, I notified everybody, I called a code before the code even happened, which, you know, and again, this is sort of, you never train for this, you know, um, I was UCSF trained and nobody told me what to do. So I just called the whole world and they arrive and the patient is barely making it. And then she crashes. Right. And you can just imagine in the dialysis patient with very low EF, she has zero reserve, even if a little air embolism got in there. And so I, um, and I was very forthcoming with the whole team. I was like, it's an air embolism, you know, let's put her on DQ, but she was huge. You know, she was, she was very large. She was morbidly obese and it was very unsafe to move her with our tables. So they resuscitated her and they were able to get a pulse back and, you know, everything intubated her, send her to the ICU. And, you know, here I am, I'm a brand new young attending. I just, you know, and I was running the board that day. And I had to feel, you know, terrible for my fellow, who of course takes this on him, um, and the poor medical student who just, you know, probably doesn't want to do IR ever again. And and I don't know what to do, you know. And um, and so I sort of felt like, well, what's the next step? And uh, and I called my chief, who was away, and he said, well, you need to talk to risk management. And I was like, I didn't know even understand what risk management was. And so trying to find that number was challenging. And thankfully, I had another attending who was uh, older and he, you know, he connected me with who I had to speak. And then I had to document in the chart what happened. But again, what do you say? Do you say I gave somebody an air embolism? I was unsupervising, you know, this terrible thing happened again. You know, you, nobody told me what to do. So I had to sort of write, you know, what happened in my own words. And then, um, and then before I knew it, the nurse comes to get me and she's like, you know, the next patient's ready in your room. And it was an SVC dilatation. Oh. Possibly, you could argue, not the best case to go into after oh, you knew it. Right. And so I was like, okay, you know, Maureen, put your big girl panties on. Let's go with it. You know, we'll, we'll figure this out. And it's interestingly, I sent my fellow home because he was very distraught, but I just stood there and I, you know, inflated, I don't know, a 14 or a 16 millimeter balloon in somebody's SVC, thinking to myself, like, is it going to be round two? You know, I mean, that's, I'm, a lot, you know, it's comical at this point, but I mean, it wasn't, I, I wanted to go home and I was, you know, dealing with consults and, and, and it didn't even occur to me that I should go home or somebody else should step in. And I just finished the day. And I remember like got in my car 
And I called, you know, my mentor, Ernie Ring, and I just and he picked up and I started sobbing. And and that was the first time he was like, Why didn't you go home? You know, did you talk to the family? And I was like, Oh my God, I haven't even talked to the family. You know, this was their mother, and something devastating happened. And I, I mean, by the time I was done with the day, which was like seven, eight o'clock, like the last thing I wanted to do was to relive it. So there was no disclosure. And so by the next day, I had spoken to the person in charge of risk management who, you know, Ramat, who taught, taught me that I needed to disclose. So by the time I got to meet with the family, which was the afternoon of the next day, they already knew what the word air embolism meant. So, I mean, this, that's not a word that, you know, is, is typical in colloquial language. So I wasn't even the, the one that gave them this news. I felt even more ashamed, you know, the patient ended up doing okay for a week. And then unfortunately um, had a PE, they thought a PE, they heparinized her, and then she had a massive intracranial hemorrhage and they withdrew support. And this went, you know, as far as it could go, you know, from the description I gave you, because an air embolism is a never event. The patient, um, you know, expired. There was, you know, definitely, um, uh, you know, uh, litigation and, and just I experienced the whole thing, you know, as a brand new junior attending. And I could tell you to this day, I, um, I am in the room, you know, like with my eyes wide, I try not to even blink during a tunneled line placement. And, um, and I'll never forget that conversation. You know, I was the last person she spoke to and it was awful and it took me and I was ashamed and I felt, you know, like I was a terrible doctor, physician, person, everything. And I just remember like, you know, even like I can tell you, I've been doing IR for a long time and placing a tunneled line is not that hard, um, for me, but you know, it definitely, it definitely is something I think about every single time a tunneled line is brought up. Um, so, uh, that, that was a long drawn out way of, of telling you my story. And, and that's something that, you know, definitely you need to involve risk management. I've definitely been involved in smaller complications where, you know, you do a biopsy and the patient bleeds or, um, and then you have to admit them. And I mean, or, you know, I've, I've definitely been in a situation where I was embolizing uh, a gonadal vein and the coil, you know, dislodged and I had to go fetch it out of the iliac vein. Um, and you, you know, you tend, you just, I've just learned that you need to disclose things to patients as soon as possible and their families, even if things are fine, you know, cause everybody reads their report and, you know, if you don't tell them things that happen during the case that could be very bad and it hurts the patient physician relationship. So I, I just have learned a lot from that case. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, Maureen. That was that like, it sounds okay. like you, Edit you really that out for when you want, but I, you know, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's, that's a crazy story. And um, when Maureen finished, by the way, that was the quietest moment in back table history. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a lot to obviously unpeel her, Aaron and Maureen. Like anybody who's anybody who's been practicing medicine, not just IR, but especially procedural medicine, um, can really uh, you know relate to every emotion you probably felt, not just in that situation, but even as you're telling the story, because there's there's so much, like I said, to unpeel. It's 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 one in this particular story. It's the immediate nature of the complication, meaning you know that this complication is just happened. You're 
thinking ahead of what the next step should be to do what's right for the patient. And that's amazing. And that's great. Uh, but yet it's still so challenging to then go on to the next case, talk to the patient's family, figure out what to do next uh, beyond the immediate life-saving nature, which is what you had to do. Um, but then there's the emotion of how do you deal with it long-term in terms of not even just like in your situation where you have residents and fellows and it may not be like a direct error of your part, for example. And it's an ex and it is a known complication of dialysis catheter placement. And although it happened during the actual exchange or whatnot, um, as you know, it can happen during the, you know, uh, wire to peel away sheath or the valve can be dysfunctional on the peel away sheath, or it can happen during many, uh, even the access needle. So it can happen during so many steps of this process. You happen to be unlucky enough to hear that air get sucked into the right atrium. But for all of us who have these complications, even those who are not in teaching facilities, where you don't necessarily have a resident or a fellow to blame, just yourself, um, which is which is equally uh, or not equally as comforting. I don't know. Um, there's a lot to digest from a situation like that, and you know, to sort of get to Aaron's point, I think too. Um, you know, how how do you then, in that immediate situation? pull it together and speak to the patient's family, not just in this, but let's say even a, let's say, you know, let's say you do a liver biopsy and there's a small pericapsular hematoma, but you don't really know, is this patient going to be getting an embo, going to surgery, staying overnight? You know, what's really going to happen when you have to go talk to this family? How do you separate yourself? You know, so you're not so, you know, upset about what happened, but able to communicate to the patient's family that, Oh my God! There's an untoward event or adverse adverse outcome. You know, I think it's 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 just hard to even imagine. You know, it's hard to answer that question um, because I imagine that every situation is different and everybody is so unique. Um, I could tell you that I was advised. <clears throat> excuse me. I was, you know, it was told to us to me that you know. When in doubt, when you are not sure about how to use, how to talk to patients or their families or what to say, just to call risk management and just involve them. But I guess, you know, and I, and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. You know, it's not like you're trying, you know, you're CYA or, you know, you're trying to cover something up. You're just trying to ask uh, people who are, you know, this is their job, you know, interacting with patients and their families about complications, how to go about going um, about doing this. But I think, you know, that, so that could be, you could do that or you could not. But I think something that it's just taken me a, a long time to understand that is like, listen, you know, we all show up to work to do the best we can, you know, and things go wrong. And so there is never, ever anything bad about being honest and just allowing the patient and the family to see that honesty of, listen, I was there, I was doing everything I could, and this unexpected thing happened. And I took steps to fix it, and they were not successful, or they were successful, and then they became unsuccessful. But overall, I am so sorry. And I think that for me, I think that, you know, I, I have a very loving family and, and my husband is, is the most amazing, you know, rock for me. But I think I have just learned that honesty with patients is, is what gets you 
to at least feel good that you can come home and you can talk about what what horribleness happened to you, to your family, or go and get support about that. But yeah, I, think, I think, Maureen, what you pointed out, sorry, you know, please finish your sentence. Yeah, no, but I think that that's it, is that, you know, there is going to be no right or wrong way. You know, clearly, as Aaron was saying, if you are feeling emotional and, you know, there's nothing wrong with crying, but but as Aaron said, you know, there's always a time and a place for it. I mean, I've sobbed over what happened in, in that situation. But when I was sitting across from the family, who, by the way, were sobbing, I had to hold it together. And I just admitted, I said, listen, we made a mistake. We made an error. It was terrible. And I am so sorry that I wasn't on the other side to prevent it. And I can assure you that it will never happen again. And I think that that, you know, because if you're trying to if, if your motivation in disclosure to the family or to the patient is try to avoid a lawsuit, that's terrible. You know, that's not why you went to medical school. So you are there to, to just admit to them, listen, I tried my best. I did everything I could, but I made a mistake. I am human. Human error exists. But here I am telling you, you know, honestly, what, what happened and why it happened. And I am so sorry. And I promise you that I will try my very hardest to never make that mistake again. And I have yeah, felt I've upheld yes. that. You know, I think that's, I think that's very valuable. Um, and by the way, the, and so I, I just want to present a little bit, a slightly different opinion and not about, not, um, not really too much. I think I completely wholeheartedly agree that you have to be honest with the patient. You have to disclose if there is a, a, a wrong decision that you made that you know, or you know of. By the way, it doesn't even have to just be that you made. You're the leader of the team, and a wrong decision could be made by somebody else on the team for which you're ultimately responsible for, um, as the proceduralist. And that's very important to you know to disclose and make the patient's family understand that this did happen and why it happened. There are, unfortunately, I would say the vast majority, luckily, of adverse outcomes for patients and. One of the reasons I think you know we wanted to talk about this too, um, this topic, is that many of the adverse outcomes for patients are not directly related to the fellow leaving open the you know the valve on a TDC, and it could be the fellow put in a dialysis catheter, and for some unknown reason that you just don't you cannot figure out, the patient ended up with a mediastinal hematoma. Could be a puncture, could be the wire tracking, could be who knows, right? It could be a million things, or ended up with an air embolism. And you didn't hear a sucking sound, right? And how you talk to the family, I think, in a situation like that, which tends to be, at least in my experience, the majority of situations where you almost can't figure it out. Like you mentioned, the port site infection uh, or a DVT after a laser procedure. And you're not quite sure. You're like, listen, I take, I put my laser catheter below the saphenofemoral junction every time, but I ended, up with a DV, I ended up with a DVT. I'm not quite sure why. I mean... I have a picture documenting where my laser fiber is, but why did this patient end up with a DVT? And then they had a PE and who, who, who knows what could have spun, you know, spun downhill from there. I think it's probably equally as important to sympathize with the patient's family as to what they're going through and how they feel. But in that situation, not it's, you know, your risk management and your malpractice litigation risk management team will tell you that it's important to, feel sympathetic to the patient's family, but not necessarily apologize for a mistake rather than apologize for what they're going through. 
And I think that might be a subtle uh, difference. Um, it may be irrelevant in a wrong-sided surgery. I mean, if you operate on the wrong side of the body, absolutely, that is something where you, I made a mistake. I, we should have been doing this. It's a clearly identifiable, uh, you know, sort of red rule error that uh, was preventable. But there are many adverse outcomes and complications that every day very good uh, physicians go through, surgeons, IRs, et cetera, that you don't know why those adverse events happened. And we still internalize it. We still cry over it. We still uh, avoid those procedures in the future. We still try and like shift those procedures to our partners and say, you know what? I don't really like doing that procedure anymore because liver biopsies kind of freak me out. You don't really say that you know, to your partners, but you just sort of, you, you become a different person because of these complications or adverse events. Even if you don't know why they happened and you did what you thought was a reasonable professional job at the time, or everybody thinks you did a professional job at the time and still these untoward events happen. I think it's, it's really important to, you know, when you go to have that conversation with the patient or family in those situations, which I think we have to use like sort of a distinction between the, the red rule violations, let's call them, and the and the uh, or the preventable errors and the ones that are just adverse events that you just don't know why they happen. I, um, I agree with you, Sunny, yeah. because I think that you know every procedure we do has an expected complication. So I mean, it's not to say we don't feel badly when you we give a patient or as a result of something that happens during the patient's experience in IR, the patient ends up getting a port infection. You know, but that is yeah. an expected complication, or it's expected. It is an expected complication to get a you know a, a hemorrhage after a liver biopsy. But yeah. I think that. But I think you know, if you biopsy the wrong lesion, for example, as you said in the liver, you know, then that's that's an issue, and so that's. So I guess I think as you as you nicely put it out, uh, or you know, discussed it, if it's a if it's a preventable one, um, then, or, or if it's an expected one, then I think you kind of, you don't have to necessarily be like so apologetic. You just kind of have to be sympathetic. You know, it's like, listen, I mean, I still say, I'm sorry, but it's like, I'm sorry you're going through this, but you know, this is, we, hopefully we've brought, you know, this was brought up during the informed consent yeah. process and the patient's not surprised. I think I've certainly had situations where, um, you know, device failures, for example, is one, you know, where, I mean, I, presumably it, uh, any device can fail, um, but you just never think that it's going to be, you know, on you. Um, but, uh, and then, I mean, what do you do in those cases? You're like, listen, I did every, I've, I've declotted, you know, sure. like hundreds of fistulas, but on this one, you know, the device just detached and, uh, or like the tip of the occluding balloon, like detached and it's somewhere in your pulmonary artery. And I could tell you, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to do any harm to you, but it's technically now like a foreign body. And, and I think, so, yeah, I, I think that, I think that those are the really hard ones, right? Because in the informed consent process, you don't talk about device failures and, yeah, exactly. and, and things like that. So I think that, but I guess, but I guess the, the other thing that you mentioned too is that, um, and I think you kind of get towards this towards uh, I don't know ten years out of your career, 
And when you've kind of been through a lot of this stuff or have watched your family or, or your, um, your friends and colleagues go through it, that you sort of look at the patient and the whole litigation part separately, even though, you know, clearly, you know, they're intimately related and you sort of just want to, like, again, what I just, what I just do or what I tell my trainees is you just kind of want to get to the patient or in the family as soon as possible and be like, listen, like I'm equally shocked as you that the tip of this, you know, Fogarty balloon or whatever, you know, that the little part of it that I don't even understand why it exists, like got detached and I tried to retrieve it. And I used like, I don't know, 10 snares and in the process, it's now somewhere in the brand in a tiny branch of your PA and you're going to be totally fine. I now, think what you said is so key. I mean, early on in your career, you don't really understand that medicine is not an exact science. And later on in your career, you learn that medicine is more of an art And there are many things that you just don't know how to have that conversation early on and explain to a patient and or their family. And yet at the same time, feel confident that you did everything that you thought was correct and what was best for the patient. And yet you still can't correct the error. And this is where, you know, medicine not being an exact science is something that you can't control every outcome. And it's important for not just young trainees and early career physicians to understand this, but even more experienced ones, because it can lead to you trying to bury that guilt, act out of a fear of litigation, um, and, and act you know, in a way that is not in your best interest or the patient's best interest, both in the short term and long term. And, and you know, to kind of dovetail to what you were saying, I think even if the even if the outcome the adverse event is you know expected or not expected and particularly if it was unexpected i think that you know we need we physicians um are we need to just you know come together um and look out for each other and i think this happens you know thankfully where i work but um if you're having a rough day like if you're having a rough case you know, maybe that you shouldn't be the one that needs to do like the super hard case to follow. You know what I'm saying? So I think we need to take better care of each other because there's there's something in all of us, especially as IRs, you know, where you're just like, you're so tough and you're going to be able to handle this. And, you know, clearly what I went through, you know, the, the adverse event there is, is much different than like, you know, having a, a device failure. But I mean, if you've lived that or if you, you know, you, you're doing a PAVM and suddenly like the device fails and you've got to go fetch the, you know, the, the plug or whatever in another artery, yeah. um, then, then I think like you need to, you need to take a moment, you know, and whether yeah. that moment is you need to go home or whether you need to like, you know, do moderate, you know, supervise a pick or place it or do a paracentesis. I think like most people will not say that they won't be like, listen, listen, Sonny, I just had a crappy case. Can I like go read out some film or can I go, you know, do the pick line? I think most people will be like, yeah, man, I'm okay. Like I, I got this. I'll, I'll, I'll dilate the SVC. No problem. <laughs> so, but <laughs> well, I think that that's bad. Yeah, you're human in one nature and you just made an error. And then the next minute you're asked to be superhuman and forget about that mistake. And it's really, you know, what experts say is sort of like you're the second victim, right? The patient's the first victim because something happened to them that you didn't obviously want. And, you know, it could be it could be a coagulopathic patient. It could be your fault. It could be a million reasons. And yet then you're having to go in this time of real stress and go work on somebody else. And 
this highlights the need, like Aaron mentioned, to find somebody to speak to. I mean, you spoke to, you know, Dr. Ernie Ring at that time, who's your mentor. And obviously you're very fortunate to, you're one also at, at a place where you did your training. Um, and as you mentioned, take, taking over the reins and now you get to push those fellows around. But the point is you're in a position where you have your mentors with you very close and that's great. And someone who you can call, but there are many people who, and I know this just from, you know, personal friends of mine and other professional colleagues, not even just in interventional specialty, but other specialties where they just don't have somebody to discuss this with. And even if it is their spouse, significant other, you know, brother, sister, et cetera, they may not be able to feel the emotion that like when you told that story earlier, or if I tell you a story, how Aaron and you and I would immediately, our emotion just sinks, you know, cause we know what you're going through at that time. They may not have that support network and uh, that is a piece of advice that I think, you know, we should make sure that anybody who listens to this podcast, they go out of their way to volunteer to go do that pick line or SVC dotation or whatever it is to help their colleague because um, that that's something that can honestly not just make or break that next um, patient experience, but it can actually really affect that physician, as you probably know, for many years to come. I mean, I know physicians who have had a complication from a certain procedure that will never do that procedure again. And right. they will walk away from it. They will not do it. And they will say, you know what? This is something that I just, they, I never feel comfortable with. And it could be because they didn't cope properly. It could be because um, they have blamed themselves to such a degree that they have become that that victim of the case, if you will but they just haven't gone through the other stages of, of dealing with the complication. You know, I think the, uh, the SIR does a really good job of, um, you know, showcasing, I mean, there's extreme IR, but I think Zeev, uh, you know, certainly pushes people to, to show complications as well. And there's definitely lots of, you know, saves and disasters, but one thing that's really helpful and has been really helpful for me is Watching, you know, the giants of the field, you know, get up there and show like stupid errors. You know, I'll never forget watching Mike Darcy, you know, tell talk about like a disastrous tips, you know, to the artery. So it's like you're like if he can make a mistake and he's standing there and he's you know continuing to teach and educate, then then I'm going to be okay, you know. So so I think that going back to what we talked about, it's like, you know, look at Twitter and it's like these incredible procedures that we do and how we save the world. And so it can be very alienating, especially if you're in a private practice setting, you know, in a remote setting where there aren't that many RIRs or maybe your practice is just not as collegial, where it could, it could really jade me. It could turn you into a jaded person. You may not want to do that procedure again, which I think is ridiculous, right? I mean, we, 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 you're good at what we do because we keep going, you know, we find different ways of overcoming. And so I think that's another important thing of like trying to find, you know, if you don't have mentors working with you, or if you're not at your institution where you trained, then you go to these sessions and you see that it's not just junior attending saying how they messed up. You I mean, you have giant people saying like, I yeah. really made a mistake here. But you know what, Maureen, you, they, these these physicians, including yourself, myself, and Aaron, we and everyone else, they need to be able to seek help right away. You know, right. the annual meeting's great, and it's a good time for people to say, you know what, oh God, uh, Maureen Coe screwed up in this case, and Sonny Bogle screwed up in this case. But I need somebody like today, 
you know, and I need to call yeah. somebody who who really is there for me. And unfortunately, places like Twitter and Instagram, where people show their saves and successes, it, it is since it's a it's not a not just not only not a closed forum, but it's not dominated by professionals in the medical community. Um, even if you tag it a million times, like many of our colleagues do, it's it's open. It's out there for anybody. And the problem is that people are migrating more to this community where they're they're showing their saves rather than their disasters and asking for, hey, what could we do better in future for X type of situation? I don't know, Aaron, we talked about this just on the phone a couple weeks ago. Yeah, no, I mean, for me, something bad, I want to pick up the phone and talk to somebody who can say, hey, man, I've been there. I've, I, that I've been to, you know, I've experienced that this is, it's tough and you'll get over it and you'll move on and you'll learn from it. I think that's part of the coping process is just talking to somebody who understands, because again, your wife, not your, you know, even though your wife might be a physician, she might not understand that that's something that can happen. And you know, you know, you can't get into the details with them or anything like that. And I feel blessed that Actually, through Twitter and through social media, I've got to learn, you know, meet all these people through conferences. That um, now I feel like I have, you know, people I can reach out to who are experts in their field in in, in maybe that procedure, and 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 I can reach out to them and and you know, kind of got, walk through a complication. So, and I think that you know, partners are tricky. Everybody's got different, um, you know different partners. Sometimes partners can be helpful, other, you know, others not so much. And I think saying nothing can be misperceived as rejection. And so it's just about picking the right person to talk to, I think. Yeah, I think that's important. And, 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 you know, to, to go back to speaking to the patient, it's very important to have, having a good professional rapport so that they know that you are doing everything you can to look out for this patient, their family member's best interest, their best interest. Because oftentimes the patient themselves may not be the one who you're having this conversation with after the procedure. And you may be having this conversation with a relative, you know, or even just a power of attorney and somebody else who doesn't have uh, a clear relationship with you, and they don't know who Sonny Bagler or Maureen Corey is. They have no idea, right? They're like, "Oh, who are you? You're the person who actually injured my, you know, brother, sister, client." Right. And I think one thing that's important for all of us to remember is that you have to have this good rapport upfront uh, with people, and to make sure. Um, obviously, this just goes hand in hand with practicing good medicine. But these are the things that will help you not just cope with things, but they're going to help the patient and the patient's family cope with things as well, too, because you have to remember they are still the center of all this. And they're going to feel like, yeah, Maureen was doing the best thing for me. Sonny was doing the best thing for me or Aaron, whoever it was in that situation. Um, they really were trying to do the best because that for them may also be the most difficult thing to get over, having that feeling of trust um, with their interventionist or proceduralist at the time. I think the the one last thing I want to say though is that we there we have to and whether it's the podcast or hopefully this and other things we have to make it okay for this incoming generation of trainees um, who are going to be the futures of our of our society to 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 be okay you know making that call and not just sort of a like shrugging it off and be like, well, you know, like complications happen. What am I going to, you know, what am I going to do? Right. I'm not, I'm just going to get over it. 
um, or or to you know try to rely on other sources to help them out and, and not get the appropriate treatment um, for what they're going through. Um, so, I mean, as much as we can encourage our friends or people we meet to be able to call each other, you know, just like if I want to do a PAE, I'm going to call Sun. I've actually done this, you know, like Sunny does his knee embolizations differently than I do. And, you know, I had a patient who was uh, having pain afterwards and I called Sunny and I was just like, is this normal? Like I did it with the way you told me and bad things happen. You know? <laughs> so, um, so you suck. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. But, um, no, but I mean, but, but he was right, you know, and he t- told me what to do. But I mean, I, I could easily just call him and be like, would you believe like I had a terrible like uterine artery embolization and like her uterus fell out. I mean, it doesn't have to be that I need to call him about the knee or the prostate. It's just that he was there for me and we have this rapport and I can, you know, rely on him. And I think that we can, you know, we're such a small society. I think we can do that. And the more we can encourage ourselves to do that, as opposed to like, you know, beating our chests and saying, wow, I'm so cool. I like recanalize this, you know, like occluded artery and look how cool I am is better. To your point, that's, that's exactly what we do. I mean, uh, just to, even though we can get off and you can always clip this later, Maureen, Maureen, I, and you can clearly talk for many hours, but I, I tell you a quick anecdotal story and I'll make it as quick as I can, but, but mention I, stream, be careful, be yeah. remember to make yeah, I gotta remember to mention stream. During we haven't said enough in this one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I got to mention Ari and stream, the two things I'm always plugging for some reason. So, you know, <laughs> In this particular case, for example, like Maureen said, I reached out to somebody who could help me with a case. And I had a complicated patient with severe lower extremity edema. Uh, They were basically disabled from it. I had been treating this patient for many years, had done multiple liver embolizations for um, neuroendocrine tumor. And they they had basically been progressing along fine, actually a fairly unfortunate young individual and had really disabling lower extremity edema from basically intrahepatic IVC occlusion. And um, I consulted with a number of what you would probably consider uh, names left unsaid, Venus experts in the field. And some of them are all, you know, actually they're all pretty good friends of mine. I called them up and said, hey, what would you do for this case? Send some images from a diagnostic venogram and said, do you think this stent would work? Why would you use this stent and whatnot? And I ended up um, making a decision, which I thought was comfortable, you know, in terms of I sized the vein, I did everything what I thought was proper, sized the vein uh, with both venography and then with IVIS. And a number of hours later, uh, after the patient is home and, you know, they were doing fine for six or eight hours, they have a coughing episode. And lo and behold, where do we find that stent when they show up to the emergency room? On a nice CT scan of the chest, the stent is perfectly placed in the <laughs> left pulmonary artery. And it almost looks like I intentionally placed it in the pulmonary artery. It fits so well. And in fact, the thoracic surgeon, the cardiothoracic surgeon called me from that hospital who knows me very well. And I think this goes to Maureen's point, I think earlier and your point earlier about conversing amongst specialties and physicians and even within our small community. Uh, This, you know, I'm obviously, even though I'm in DC, I've been here for 10 plus years and I know all the cardiothoracic surgeons and vascular surgeons. So when they got consulted on, on this case, they basically said, well, it looks fine. I and mean, what are you going to do? It's a stent that's there. It's fitted to the artery. And I'm not going to do anything in this pulmonary artery anyways. Patient's fine. Just send them back and put a longer stent in. You know, something so simple and easy. And there was no real untoward event for the patient except for an ER, ER visit and a, a one or two-day hospital admission. But nonetheless, it was so traumatic that for myself, I felt like, 
oh my God, that I picked the wrong stent, the wrong length. The, it, was this not a procedure that we should even be doing at all? Should IVC stenting be like off the map? Uh, maybe I should never be doing an IVC stent. <laughs> but in that type of situation, if you run into this and you're a young attending and you don't know what to do, it is very hard to disclose this uh, to your partners, to uh, if they're not very supportive by nature. Um, and if you're early in your career, like I've seen from some of the people we've interviewed and worked with in our practice, uh, which is young and growing, it's very hard for these young physicians who are coming out of training to accept that this is something they could have done better. Instead, they're trying to, like Maureen say, I recanalize this artery and I'll have add one more to Maureen's story. I did it in six minutes. You know, people <laughs> add this like time, this time thing, which right. is like, I did it even faster than you. Like, I think this is so important um, for especially this younger uh, group of physicians, uh, and hopefully I include us in that young group of physicians, is that to be able to be vulnerable and speak to your partners and colleagues, and, and I guess that was sort of the point of, of, of my story, I guess. Thanks for making the point. I mean, I, um, yeah. you know, I was lost. I was like, what is he? No, <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's what happens on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah, no, I think it's such a good point. You, I mean, I think, you know, we can go on for hours on this, but, but, um, but it's so true. And I think that there's, there is a hostile environment that goes on in certain places and certain practices. And it unfortunately kind of breeds this. Um, and I don't know yeah. what one does yeah. to avoid it. Well, guys, um, I think we covered a lot today. And uh, <laughs> if you guys enjoy the show, um, please check out the rest of our uh, podcasts. You can find them on backtable.com or you can find them on, uh, we're on several platforms, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, amongst others. And we're also available, uh, you can find all our po podcasts on JiggleMed, the JiggleMed app, which is a great uh, app for, for docs and healthcare providers. And uh, we happen to have the, the founder, Sonny Bagla, on today. And uh, Sonny, any, any new updates on the app? Yes, yeah, so thanks, Aaron. We um, thank you. Thanks for even for talking about. It. We um, what's nice about it, I think is obviously it's more of a closed knit community in terms of healthcare provider providers, people in in the medical device pharmaceutical industry, but really active with streaming live cases. Um, so we've been doing that um, whether it's prostate, shoulder, knee, you name it, uh, and more cases to come. Even a a live TAVR case. But we are working to in, in add more specialties and verticals. So you're going to be seeing soon that not just a forum, which is interventional radiology specific, but interventional cardiology, podiatry, ortho, primary care, that should be coming over the next three to six months, which is what we're working on awesome. uh, right now. And so hopefully um, uh, that'll be a great addition uh, to the educational platform that you guys are also providing uh, in the IRAD community. Cool. Well, um, thanks again for guys for coming on and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Have a good Sunday.